Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr Patrick Walsh. He is a research fellow in the School of Humanities in Trinity College, Dublin, where he is working on the IRCHSS-funded Insular Christianity Project. His publications include The Making of the Irish Protestant Ascendancy, The Life of William Connolly, 1662-1729. He is currently completing a book on Ireland and the South Sea Bubble. His paper is entitled Was St. Patrick a Presbyterian? History, Tradition and Identity in Andrew Stewart's A Short Account of the Church of Christ in Ireland. The title of today's paper was St. Patrick a Presbyterian, History, Tradition and Identity in Andrew Stewart's A Short Account of the Church of Christ in Ireland. There is no single answer, I'm afraid, as some people once advised straight yes. <laughs> the story of Tudor and Stuart Ireland has been characterised as one of nations of newcomers. Probing the relationships between the different communities in early modern Ireland has long been a major focus within the historiography of the period. Much recent research has served to illustrate the complexities of intercommunal relations, demonstrating that identities were often fluid, that it was perfectly possible for individuals and groups to have multiple identities, which drew on, one, drew on amongst other influences, ethnicity, confessional religions, and understandings of the past. For communities, and especially the different religious denominations, competing versions of the past became increasingly important from the mid 17th century, as the three major Christian denominations sought to claim the legacy of the early Irish church for themselves. Identifying true heir of St. Patrick became a matter of some importance. Four historians and or polemicists writing within all three traditions. James Usher exclaims, For Church of Ireland, St. Patrick, perhaps the best known to historians, but much research has been done on Catholic attempts to preserve their inheritance from the early church and their battles with those who sought to appropriate it. Veneration of saints, as Robert Armstrong and Michael pointed out, was one route whereby Catholics could exemplify their differences from the Reformed churches. While saints were also at once a weapon against Protestantism, Catholic opponents of modern heresy, being identified as the heirs and successors of previous Catholic saints who successfully confront the dragon and earlier Christian epochs. In this paper, I want to look at how the most significant 17th century newcomers, the Ulster Scots, Presbyterians, sought to appropriate the saints, the legacy of the natives, and the attempts made by Andrew Stewart to claim St. Patrick Presbyterians. Before examining Stewart's analysis of the early church, it's necessary to outline the context within which he wrote is a short account of the Church of Christ in Ireland. And Stewart's history was written as part of a conscious effort made by the first generation of Irish Presbyterian ministers to record the story of their arrival in Ireland and the subsequent progress of the gospel. The first moves towards producing a narrative of their past were made in the late 1660s. In 1669, the General Committee, an ad hoc body which brought together members of the five presbyteries established in Ireland since the first foundation of Carrick Fergus in 1642, instructed one of their members, the Reverend John Gregg, to produce a, quote, a history of the beginnings and progress of the gospel in these parts. End quote. And Gregg, a Scotsman, had been minister at Carrick Fergus in 1646 and survived the trials and tribulations of the later 1640s and 50s as well as imprisonment for suspected complicity in the blood plot of 1663. And these experiences, as well as his prominent role in the affairs of the Presbytery, made him a sensible choice as official historian. Unfortunately, and there's a theme here, he died in July 1670 before he had time to complete his task. Instead, his completion devolved onto his neighbour, Andrew Stewart, Minister Donald Dean. Stewart was a seventh generation Scots immigrant, his father, 
Paul to Andrew, had come to Ireland as a minister of the Church of Ireland and ministered in the parish of Donegore, County Antrim, from at least 1627, possibly before, until his death in 1634. And his son, according to some accounts, was born in 1623. Other accounts, however, including that given by his nephew-in-law, Andrew Crawford, suggest he was a young man at the time of the Six Mile Water Revival in 1625. And the evidence in his, in his later history is ambivalent on this, on this matter. Either way, like his father before him, he had entered the ministry following his, his education at Glasgow, and was called to be minister at Donaldy in 1646. Forced to flee Ulster in 1649, he remained in exile in Scotland until 52. And upon his return, he quickly achieved a position of prominence amongst the Presbyterian ministers, acting as their representative of meetings the General Assembly in Scotland, and with the authorities of Dublin, both before and after the Restoration. Like Greg, he was imprisoned for suspected complicity in the blood plot, something that perhaps only confirms their status within the community. Instructed by the General Committee to assist Greg in his historical endeavours, Stuart is generally credited with the production of the unfinished manuscript history that survives and forms the basis of today's paper. And Stuart's text remains unfinished at the time of his death, in early 1671, and is generally believed to have been composed in the last few months of his life. Hence, it's short, it's abrupt ending. Following his untimely, divide, his untimely demise, the task of producing a history of the church was entrusted to a succession of his fellow ministers, before finally being taken up by Patrick Adair, minister of Carn Castle, who used it as a source for his also unfinished, but much better known history, true narrative of the rise of the Presbyterian government in the north of Ireland. And there's a sequence of unfinished histories to further ministers of Pontius in 1690, in 1690s, Robert Craghead and another, and then again in 1712, and they never finished the task. Um, now, Dare's work, however, has become the standard 17th century origin text for Irish Presbyterianism, and has been used extensively by later historians since the early 18th century. Stuart's work, however, has been comparatively neglected. Known to Adair, who refers to it within his own text, it was rediscovered in the early 1720s. When a copy was made by Stuart's nephew in law, the aforementioned Andrew Crawford, could use the great Scottish historian Robert Woodrow. Woodrow, upon receiving Stuart's text, was however disappointed. He was hoping for a narrative of the progress of the church, as Stuart, if you remember, was instructed to produce in the 17th century, but only six of the 63 folios that survive dealt with the period after the entry of the Scots. The rest Woodrow deemed to be of little value, a view that would be echoed by the 19th century historians James Stephen Reid. W.D. Killen. Indeed, Killen described the first two chapters of being of little historical importance as being based on very doubtful authorities, something that Killen wasn't able to do himself. As a result, he appended Stuart's third chapter to his 1866 edition of Adair's True Narrative. This was the only appearance of Stuart's text in print, and the first full complete edition is only now being prepared by myself and two colleagues, Scott Spurlock and Robert Armstrong, TCD. The 19th, the 19th century dismissals of the first two sections of Stuart's text have also ensured their neglect by later historians. The remainder of this paper will concentrate on this work, showing that Stuart's attempts to locate the origins of the Irish Presbyterian Church in the early Christian period constitutes an interesting intervention into wider Irish, Scottish, and European debates about the Protestant character of the early Church. Actually, it reflects some of the themes raised in Brian's paper. Stuart's task is inherited from Greg was to produce an Irish of the group church in Ulster from the arrival of the first Scottish ministers during the plantation. And this story, as he calls it himself, chiefly intended part of his history, only takes up the final few pages. Instead, he chose to begin his history with the arrival of the first Christian missionaries in Ireland in the 5th century. Dividing his story into three parts, he sought to tell the story of the Irish church, viewed backwards through a Scottish Presbyterian lens. 
The first section told the story of the Irish Church before the arrival of the English. The second explored the face of the Church after the coming of the English, a period of eclipse. While the final section told the story after the entry or envoy of the Scots, significant period of triumph. Significantly, the focus for Irish was on the Church. The emphasis was on continuity rather than change. At, at times, as we shall see, the continuities between the remote past and Stuart's 17th century present rested on impressive, impressive feats of contortion and selective interpretations of the available evidence. Beginning with the arrival of Palladius and Patrick in the 5th century, Stuart's intention was to demonstrate the explicitly Celtic, using the word, dimension of the Irish Church and its Irish and Scottish origins. The purity of this primitive church in his reading was later corrupted by Roman and English influences, only to be explored, only to be restored to its original grace with the arrival of the non-conforming Scottish ministers in the early decades of the 17th century. In his basic outline of the early church and corruptions introduced by Roman-led reforms in the 12th century, Stuart was not proposing a major revision of history, but instead offering a subtle interpretive challenge to his Episcopalian contemporaries. Indeed, he often relied on these contemporaries for information and even argument. Here is most significant sources for the works of the aforementioned earlier paper, Dr. Meredith Hammer, whose late 16th century history of, history of Ireland was first published by Sir James Ware in 1633, alongside his famous editions of Spencer and Campion. And Stuart relies extensively on Hammer for his information. Um, most importantly, James Usher's Discourse on the Religion professed for the Ancient Irish and British, published in London in 1631, first published in 1622. Utter's discourse was a hugely significant work and was as widely cited in the 17th century as it has been by modern scholars who have sought to use it as an entry point into discussions of Irish Protestant identity in the period. Usher's aim was to demonstrate the antique origins of the Church of Ireland, or John McCarthy's memorable, memorable phrase, to characterise the monasteries of the Church of Ireland as a proto-TCD, and the monks in them as many dons. <laughs> Usher's focus on the monastic origins of the Irish Church was designed to demonstrate that it was untainted by association with Rome, until the 12th century, but the pre-12th century era had seen the growth of Irish diocesan structures, which were recognisable ancestors of the post-Reformation Church of Ireland. Stuart's aims were similar, but with vital differences. And his work should be seen as a response, or, a response to or commentary of the work of the man he referred to. So with, with apparent gen genuine respect throughout his text as Great Usher, or Famous Usher, and continues Famous Usher says such and such Great Usher, and you think we can take these in reasonable respect, you see the same in Dare's work. And Stuart, like Usher, was anxious to stress the Celtic origins of the Irish Church, reflecting the dominant historiographical trope of Reformation Church history in the Three Kingdoms. Stuart, however, added a distinctive Presbyterian flavour. It was evident in his depiction of the early monastic settlements as an identification of a shared Irish and Scottish heritage, and his discussion of the doctrines expanded in St. Patrick. Beginning with the first of these elements, the monastic organisation, the early Irish Church, Stuart goes at some length to demonstrate that the patrician church was one of presbyters bishops. He cites the oft-quoted comments repeated by Usher, that Patrick ordained 3,000 ministers and 365 bishops, but suggests these claims were fabulous, who have thought. And the vast number of them makes it suspicious, or else the bishops mean to a nothing of the ordinary presbyters, and the ministers ruling elders and deacons, which it's probable they will be. He then goes on to support his case, not just in reference to the early Irish church, but also to the writings of St. Augustine, and Catholic counter-reformation writers such as St. Robert Bellarmine is quite happy to use Catholic authors for this suit's purpose. Stuart's argument is that the use of the word bishop in early sources needs to be treated with caution. This fluidity of meaning is allowed them to characterise the early monasteries as proto-presbyteries, ruled by a combination of ministers and elders. 
Bishops as understood in the 17th century did not arrive until the first papal appointments in the 12th century. And Stuart's determined exposition of an Irish and Scottish church um, drew on the work of the influential 16th century Scottish historian George Buchanan, um, who had written very much of a Scottish church free from political influence. And, and this, this version of history was also grew popular later on with 19th century historians of Irish Presbyterians, Thomas Hamilton and W.G. Latimer. Both echoed Stuart's analysis and referential works, and we'll come back to those a bit later. And Stuart's most sustained challenge to Usher focused on the relationship between the early Irish and Scottish churches and the cross pollination of ideas and individuals, stressing the influence of the early, the early Scottish church on Ireland to allow Stuart to shape his narrative around this relationship, culminating in the re entry of the Scots in the early 1600s. Much of his disagreement with Usher focused on the latter's use of the term Scotia as a well known controversy. Usher, in the prefatory letter to his discourse, had declared that he was going to treat the Irish and Scots as one since Ireland was once called Scotia later. A declaration that Stuart rejected because, in his eyes, it privileged the Irish, when instead, if anything, it should have been the other way around. He subscribed to the view propounded by Buchanan, John Fox, the Martyrs, and the English antiquarian Sir Henry Spellman that the Church of Ireland antedated the Churches, the Church of Scotland, sorry, antedated the Church of Ireland, having been founded by the Apostles. Here he quotes the writings of the Church Father Tertullian to support his case, while also acknowledging the influence of the Romans, who he pointed out never came to Ireland after all. Ireland, as he points out, as Usher himself confessed, knew nothing of Christ a few years before Patrick, who he says was sent by the Pope to convert them. The impact of the Scottish Church is clear here, while elsewhere Stuart is at pains to point out that the system of bishops and elders, described earlier as important from Scotland, does not, however, he does, however, he does, however, allow for the later influence of Irish saints in the Scottish Church, showing that there was a two-way traffic across the northern regions of the Irish Sea. Here he particularly lauds Colin Kill and the Irish monks of Lindisfarne. Colin Kill's presbyterial tendencies were later identified, again by the 19th century historians Hamilton and Latimer, who saw him as co-equal as an importance to the development of the true Church of Ireland. For Hamilton, Colin Kill was emphatically a Presbyterian, while for Latimer, Prudent Patrick's adherence to that faith was evident in the absence of any mentions of Mary worship, purgatory, or transubstantiation in his written works. Stuart had in less than century tones also demonstrated Patrick's advocacy of the Presbyterian system through a commentary on the text of his two synods. And, and this text recently published by Sir Henry, Henry Spellman in his concilia, which Stuart uses as a source, which are also extensively quoted by Usher. And Stuart details the most important resolutions from these synods, but leaves out some parts saying, quote, some other things he had concerning things now antiquated in the Reformed churches, such as of monks, nuns, consecrations of churches, which I have purposely left out partly as I have reason to sus suspect the truth of them, considering that I find that Patrick, in making canons of the Holy Scripture, and drew out of them, and the best counsels, the rule of government and discipline, and partly because they are wholly useless in this age to his church. So again, we have selective evidence. This message is, the message is clear. Patrick Simmons suggested a form of church organisation, Entirely consistent with the ordering of the modern Reformed Church. Following his discussion of the two synods, Stuart goes on to explore the expansion of the Irish Church and the successes of the Irish saints in spreading their message both within Ireland and on the continent. And so this early success of the Church began, however, in his reading, to dissipate in the 10th century, the spread of what Stuart describes as the epidemical plague of the Universal Church, which led to the wearing out the very scent of true Christianity and the seed sown in Patrick's days, foreign influence idolatry and the return of pagan practices. Here he includes Patrick's purgatory, which he carefully dis disassociates from the illustrious saint. He then goes on to discuss in some detail the doctrine of the early church, demonstrating its essential Protestant character. 
Here he relies heavily on Usher's interpretation. His only issue with the Archbishop is the aforementioned Scottish problem. Stuart disputes the implicit Irish exceptionalism, which he sees as Usher's work, pointing out that much of the evidence that Usher cites is derived from Scottish rather than Irish sources. And amongst Usher's major sources are the two biblical scholars, Sidonius and Claudius, both of which are given the appellation Scotus, something as we have seen Stuart denoted. Scottish, not Irish origins. In this case, in the case of Claudius, they were both wrong. Embarrassingly, as Alan Ford has pointed out, pointed out, Claudius was a Spanish Augustinian bishop of Turin. This one misidentification of Claudius may not matter hugely. Both writers were keen to get their sources right, for also for polemical purposes. For Stuart, demonstrating the similarities between his church and its descent from Patrick and its historical links with St. Patrick more and more important. In this respect, he succeeded. And St. Patrick, if he ever existed, may not have been Presbyterian. The matter is not Patrick's nonconformity with Roman norms, but instead the desire of 17th century Irish Protestants, both Episcopalian and Presbyterian, to claim him. In doing so, they're both laying claim to an older Irish past, and rejecting the interpretation of Edmund Spencer and others, the true church in Ireland only dated back to the Reformation. Through the efforts of Stuart, Usher, and their contemporaries, later generations were equally determined to demonstrate the long history of the Church of Ireland, whatever their church. Thus, Thomas Hamilton, first president of the Queen's College of Belfast, in his popular 1886 history of the Irish Presbyterian Church, was able to assert to his intended audience to bolster farm laborers and Belfast artisans, artisans and specifically directs his book, not of the readers of Reed's three volume of monumental tomes, that St. Patrick could not be claimed for either Romanism or Episcopacy, whether his teachings and church organization were more akin to modern Presbyterianism. We hope you enjoyed this HistoryHope.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the HistoryHope.ie website.